Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, hi, everybody, and thank you for joining me once again. My guest today is Stephen J. Manning, and if you listen to my podcast, then you know I have this question for everyone, which is, what's your story? And let me just tell you, Steve is no exception. He is a provocateur, he's an author, he's a professional speaker, and he's a leader. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, Marcia. Thank you very much for having me. What a pleasure. It is going to be what we used to say in the old days, a blast, because I have had enough conversations with you prior to doing this to understand how interesting you are. You know that Dos Equis guy? He doesn't have a he doesn't have an inch on you, dude. You are an interesting man, and I am excited to have you share your story with our listeners. And I think a great way to get started, because it, it sort of explains a bit about you, is to have you tell us about your background, because it's not the same as most people that I know. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thank you for asking. I will do that. Speaking of the Dos Equis guy, uh, <laughs> a man I know just said to me, does the Dos Equis guy have you on speed dial? The answer to that is the Dosaki's guy is out of work. So I'm not sure what that means. Uh, You're not. <laughs> uh, actually, interesting. The man that was the Dosaki's guy, I knew. He was just no another kidding. guy in advertising in my world that one day was there for audition and became a phenomenal gig. I wish I could have had that. Of course, I have a long list of all the Dosaki sayings, by the way, which I will whip up when it's necessary. There you go. Uh, to your question, to your question, a couple of things about my background and my background, of course, is part of my very much my active DNA, uh, both for real and experientially. A um, couple of things that I always talk about when I ask is one of those, and you've asked me to relate. I was born and raised in communist Romania, uh, just post Second World War. Uh, I've talked a great deal about that. Uh, you know. Question is, hey, what was what's communism like? What is it like to live in a country like that? And I find, and you and I relate to this very directly, that most Westerners, particularly Americans, it is an incomprehensible thing, communism. They don't really get it. Uh, too many things, too many people think that when I describe what life is like there, they come, oh, you're exaggerating. Is it like cheap television, you know? No, not really. In fact, the contrary. Imagine people like you who express yourself as eloquently as you do. Imagine living a life where there is no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion, absolute no due process. 
live on a regime where that relentlessly seeks to control even your thoughts, the thoughts of citizenry, and of course brutally enforces that. And that is how you, that's what communism is, unbeknownst to most, most Westerners, really. Uh, so certainly a substantial impact on my life. I believe the schizophrenic life, you know, things you hear at home, they're very different than the things you hear outside the home and all the dangers that go with it. I write a bit about it in my book, particularly as it relates to my father. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit more in, in a moment or two. Another substantial impact on my young life and then my entire adulthood is that both my parents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, there's a whole pathology to children of Holocaust survivors. Uh, in fact, uh, I was just a, doing a thing on Netflix TV about children of Holocaust survivors. It's interesting pathology. Mm-hmm. I, write a, I write a fair bit about uh, all of that. I write a lot about uh, the most enduring pathology in history, uh, which, of course, is anti-Semitism and all of that. And that, so much of me, of course, is shaped by really three people, going backwards, my amazing wife. I married a phenomenal woman who is certainly much brighter than I am, um, very much more measured than I am, but really taught me how to live in balance. Uh, prior to her, I really did not understand balance. For me, everything was turbo boost. My wife, Annie, taught me how to mediate all of that, make it more complete, 24 hours a day. My parents, I was raised by two truly amazing parents. Now, they were really polar opposites, as people are, but they both contributed mightily to planting all the seeds that ultimately became the precepts of my life and also the pillars of my success. Now, talking about my mom, I have to, or she'll rise from her grave and beat me about the head. I, I promise you that there is not a day when I don't do something, say something, contemplate something, and a thought doesn't flash across my brain, however briefly, uh-oh, my mom would really have a problem with that because she did have that kind of impact in my life. Now, this woman was the epitome of class and grace. She really was. It's a tremendous subtlety of intellect. She was really beautiful inside and out. What she always was, Marcia, is, as I know you are, because we've talked about this, she was an amazing teacher's, teacher of all those things that mattered to me as a boy, you know? And whatever I am as a man today in relation to women, I owe that to certainly my mother, and then, of course, later on, my, my wife. Now, you know, my mom, uh, well, she knew what she was doing. Now, think about this. She raised me on classical music. How do you do that to a boy, you know? She did. Mm-hmm. Uh, dragged me to the tennis courts when I was five years old. That turned out to be a good thing because I hustled people for living on tennis courts years later. And then how about all those languages? Uh, really, uh, it's, I think it's cruel to teach a young boy to speak German. We were already to Russian and French and Hungarian and Romanian. You know, as an aside to this, uh, Marcia, perhaps somebody will tell me why. How is it that all our language teachers were nuts? And they all had bad breath. Bad breath. But don't, don't answer that. And that last but not least, my mom, I think, was devious. I might have been 13 when she decided that I needed to take dance lessons. There were no dance lessons in the old country for kids, only adults. So 
that turned out to be a devious and wonderful thing for me. Now tell me something. Where else does a young teenage boy get to be that close to grown women without <laughs> getting slapped? My mom knew in school. Did you were you my at that point? Let me, may I interrupt you for a moment? When you're describing that of part of your life, when you were 13, were you still in Romania or were you in the United yes. States at that point? Oh, you were still we there. Were in, okay. We were in wonderful communist Romania, living the living the schizophrenic life of uh, living, being able to exist. And the flip side, which for my father was an outspoken reactionary. Uh, uh, enemy to the government, for which he wow. paid a terrible price. I write for that in my book. I remember vividly my father being tortured by the government for his, oh my goodness. Uh, for his outspoken, outspokenness that said, uh, schizophrenic, his job was to feed 20 million people. He was chief engineer, husbandry, agriculture. So on one side, he had a, a Land Rover with a driver. We had a phone. How many people had a phone when I was a kid? And there was a DC-3, a Boeing DC-3, that would land on this dirt outside town to ferry my father around because, hey, the prime minister wants to see you, and he's going to see him. That doesn't mean that six months later, the secret police will grab the man off the street, beat him half to death for three weeks just to teach him a lesson, and that my mom would put him back together in two or three months, and life would continue. That hmm. was my life in Romania. Uh, Relating to my father, now here's a man that, uh, he was a rock. He's a rock of rocks. You know, it, it, it was, that said, he was as tough a man and as he was generous and kind in spirit. Uh, he fine. was an absolute born rescuer, which has mm. a price. I unfortunately inherited a little bit of that, thankfully not all of that, but that's what he was. And he was brilliant. He was bleeding edge mind and intellect. And he, as it ties together to so much of my life and my writing, uh, he lived by an unyielding morality. This is a man that was never situationally ethical. He never bent. He was what he was, his morality. And as I said, he did pay a tremendous price for that. Now, a little bit on the, on the lighter side, uh, my dad was a big man, a really big guy. And frankly, he was not particularly attractive. Oh. And he wasn't particularly charming. Now, but he was a righteous intellectual snob. All of this doesn't explain a, a real interesting little piece of my life, which I haven't been able to figure out yet. Why is it, why was it, that so many quality women just adored this man? You know, it wasn't because he was so good looking. And it wasn't because, he was no Rudy Valentino, you know. And he, Brad Pitt was not waking up in the middle of the day saying that man was just too good looking. He was a bit of a bogey, though. But it's interesting how uh, the psyche really works. Every huh. single quality woman about us just adored this man. He could say the back of this thing to them. Oh, gee, you're really not looking very well. And they, oh, well, let they me, started laughing and hugging this man. I'm going to interrupt you only because there are some questions that I want to really make sure that we have time to talk about. And so I'm going to sure. move you along. So I'm, I know you can't see me raise my hand to say my turn, but so I apologize <laughs> if I do um, stop you along this way because it is a one-hour podcast. 
But I think that this really leads into what you were talking about because of the influences. And I know that you have some very significant philosophies of life. And maybe you could just share briefly about what those are. Okay. Uh, I have uh, philosophies of life, if you will, uh, and there are four of those. And I kind of have those on this imaginary teleprompter from my mind. I -hmm. see this. I see it every day. I see it all the time. Influences everything I do, and thankfully a lot of my thinking. Uh, First, life is not a dress rehearsal. Uh, I will, when we have more time, be glad to share with you how that came about. I was 15 years old when that struck me. The circumstances are interesting, perhaps more to me than the listeners, but it's something that I've cultivated over the years, but it did come to me when I was 15 years old when I was a penniless, homeless immigrant in Rome one day. Now, the, the bottom line to, hey, this is not a dress rehearsal. We're living this now. Life is now, not, not what well, we'll do this again. This may happen again. No, it's not going to happen again. It's today. This is the big show. If you don't live it today, you may never live it again. You've got to live it mm-hmm. today, live it every day. See, uh, all that I hear all day from uh, all sorts of people. Hey, someday I want, I want to do this. Or I will do that. Or I will do that. Hell, 28 people sent me emails last week asking about, well, someday I'm going to write this. You know, all of that is, is living the dress rehearsal, not life. Right. All that soft stuff, you know, I will do this, I'll do that. Uh-uh-uh. All that, what do you end up with? Swiss cheese without any cheese. That <laughs> is, life is not dress rehearsal. I live that. Uh, no, number two, and I'm not in order of importance, but it's just my list. A life without passion is not a life worth living. Now, a life without passion really, is not I, a life with. Say that one more time, please. A, a life without passion is uh-huh. not a life worth living. Got See, it. Imagine waking up in the morning and yawning all day. Not because you're sleepy, because you have nothing in your life you get really excited, passionate about. Right. I live very differently. I can bring the same passion to my breakfast. As I do to something that happened yesterday in Somalia, I'm being very upset about 14,000 young women being mutilated, or something that happened in Sub-Saharan Africa, or in Des Moines, Iowa, or Burbank, California. If you can't get passionate about things like that, I don't relate to you. I eliminate people from my life who are not passionate about things and events and people because it's not about them. Or so what? If there's nothing I can do about it, you know what? Uh, I don't need I don't need you. I look at passion. In life, you have three options, really. You can lead, follow, or get out. Get out, that's easy. Failure is easy. It's a no-brainer. What exactly is the point? Two, you can follow. Okay. What do you do? Get in the flow? You become ordinary. You become obscure. Does that make any sense? No, not to me. You can lead. Now, there is the holy grail. How do you lead? You hopefully end up leading, and I, do, I can do 100 hours in leadership, as can you. Hopefully you lead by influencing what people think, and even more importantly, how they think. Now, that would be the holy grail. Mm-hmm. Now, number three in my, my little wisdom of life, yes. you seek knowledge and wisdom all the time and everywhere. 
The knowledge is ubiquitous. It's endless. Um, bright people created this massive library in the sky called Google. And then so much more. It would require lifetimes. Just put a dent into gathering what knowledge is. See, almost 100% of knowledge is absolutely accessible, you know. And you're two fingers, two taps away from anything. You want to know about the mating habits of wallabies? No problem, a couple taps. You want to know more about me or you? Just tap away for a couple minutes. Bottom line is how I raise my kids and all the young people that have been fortunate to have around in my business life. Mm -hmm. Always ask the next question and the next. Uh, understand that there are no definitive answers to most questions for most of us. Just testable hypotheses. If this is true, then what? And you can keep asking questions until somebody throws a book at you. See that? In context of knowledge, I am an absolute shameless researcher. Uh, you and I talked about that as well. Well, I will talk to everybody who will talk to me. Heck, uh, my wife is used to losing me in restaurants and, and airports because I got to talking to somebody for, what, a long, long time? You know? Right. I once called the Pope to ask a theological questions. question. That's shameless. I've been lost on airplanes. I've ended up in various parts of the world not intending to because I have to sit next to someone who was the person in self-discipline may not mean much to me. But, hey, in the presence of greatness, I am absolutely shameless. And I find out that most people are absolutely willing to share and educate you. Just ask. No, I, Maybe offer some quick for quote. Uh, sure. Often it's astounding when the woman or the guy who is the premier expert or something will talk to you forever. Just for, for thanks. Finally, and I'm done with this in a moment, here's a piece of wisdom that I live by, and this is an absolute. Is this your number at four? At the end of any given day, I can't identify two things that I learned that day or became clear to me for the first time, if it is just new to me. You know, new to me is simple. I mean, to a newborn, every joke is new. If I can't identify through those, I wish that the only commodity that is truly perishable, that is time. And I promise you that is something I absolutely do without failure. Mm -hmm. Those would be my, my interesting to me, certainly. Right. Uh, it's what I live by. Well, you know, I, 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 think those are, I think those are really great. I will make sure I include that in my blog because I think that if people are listening – intently as I am, they're maybe not taking notes. And certainly I would like people to know that you do have a very interesting website. It is Stephen, and your Stephen is not spelled with a P-H. You are S-T-E-V-E-N-J, like Julie, Manning, M-A-N-N-I-N-G, dot com. And your website um, definitely has some very interesting things there, including your blog and lots of other things that you do. In an effort to get through some of these other questions, I thought perhaps what we could talk about is we, you mentioned your philosophies. Do you also have some pillars of success that you would like to tell us about? Absolutely. Uh, again, this is born out of how I was raised. 
and brought uh-huh. out of my philosophy of life. Uh, my pillars of success, and, by, and, and I do thank you for mentioning my website, and I hope that listeners will uh, dig into the blog tab. Uh, those are the pieces that have been saved for very specific reasons. Most of those I am grateful and humble to tell you have gotten been around the world, so uh, they've been subject of many podcast interviews and so on. I, I do hope that people read those. They're, they're special. Certainly are to me and my audience. Now, pillars of success. Uh, it's a good question what success really is. It's pretty complex a paradigm, you know. I think people define success quantitatively, qualitatively. It's so unique to people, groups of people, even populations, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, uh, success are societal, stational, chronology of life, uh, dependent on ethnicities, economics, geopolitical, and so much more. And I don't want to get into how people define uh, success in terms of wealth or professional achievement. Maybe, maybe not. But I do remind myself every day when I grouse about this, complain about that, is that I'm reminded that for many, many, many people, perhaps billions of people, success is, in fact, having food and shelter. And tragically, for a whole large subset of those people, success is just simple survival. I define success fairly simply for me anyway. It's having options in life. You know, being able to seek and find satisfaction in life in ways that I want to, I'm able to pursue, and not at the expense of others. Now, I do have four pillars of success. I'll try to be brief because we will run out of time if you let me go. <laughs> First, uh, I think that it's very important to achieve success, to adopt and leverage the single most important word in life and business. Now, the ever-present options are, heck, if you've ever done anything in advertising or marketing, uh, all the talking has said, oh, no, the most important word in the English language as it relates to success is the word free. Well, really, uh, well, you know, Aaron Montgomery back in the, in the dark ages start, started saying free when he created the first uh, direct mail catalog. Now everything is free. Every offer has a free. When everything is free, nothing is free. We're not dumb. Free is baked into everything. So all I'm saying is, hey, the guy or the woman who's buying a Rolls Royce walks away from a purchase if he or she doesn't get a free tank of gas. The reality is they pay for it. On balance, I just think free is cheap. Now, Next one is no. Well, you know what? Every life scientist tells you no is the most important word in language. Because I don't actually know what life scientists really are. Hmm. But I'm pretty much, I'm pretty sure those people are degree, kind of like basket weavers. No, 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 no. The word no to me is the most, most verbal cop-out. The most important word in the English language that's related to success is yes. It is yes. It's the option for those people who seek success and are willing to take the steps and the risks to achieve those. It is yes, people, who forge ahead courageously when most people say no. It is yes, people, who know that if you are afraid of wolves, best not be wandering into the forest. The forest of business and life is inhabited by all manner of wolves. So yes, people, forge ahead into that forest when they see opportunities, opportunities they can quantify some potential, you know, hey, this is a big deal. And they look at the 
qualified and downside liabilities. Uh-oh, we could die of this. And then they put on their big boy girl and big boy skirts and pants, walk up the trees toward a rail like they see as potential success, and they begin to believe in it, act on it. Now, I can tell you things about, about some of my early yeses. I mean, uh, if you'd like me to, I will do that. I mean, it's the first best Steve, let's and worst do this. job but I ever I'm had. sorry. Let me interrupt. While I'd like you to do that, perhaps we'll have time with that at the, towards the end. But okay. there are some other things that Let I really... Let me give you the rest of my pillage. Pardon me? May I, could, may I just give you the rest of my pillars without expanding? Oh, please. Yes. Please, please, please. Okay. The next thing on pillar of success for me, without a doubt, is never consider failure an option. It's brainless to concede defeat from the get-go. Why bother? It is much easier to fail than it is to succeed. And in terms of considering failure, just one little phrase here. Uh, you need to understand that all successful people fail at times. Often and remarkably and repeatedly, what they all have in common is that their failures are never because of lack of effort or convictions. Rather, something just conceptual is out of the grass. Something went bad they could not anticipate. So that next three pillow success, homework, homework, more homework, exhaustive homework. So there is no substitute for wisdom on the firing line. You learn as you go along, you have to. But how much homework do you do? Not enough. And when you're done with that, you do some more. And when you're done with that, you know you haven't done enough. As I've said, I'm a shameless researcher. Being a shameless researcher dovetails exceptionally well with most people's willingness, even eagerness, to share knowledge and help. Okay, next, pillar of success. Outwork and outthink everybody. Now, outthink everybody, well, that's kind of rarely, if ever possible. You know, there's a, there's a dream. Outwork people, the reality is that you need to, you may not be able to, but you have to try to outwork people. Uh, you do that, and I will relate that to some of the time when everybody else says, no, you say yes. You don't turn it down. If it's not morally repugnant, it's honest. Hey, I cleaned rat cages at the laboratories at Cedar sinai Medical Center, no, 17. I said yes to that, and nobody else would. Why? I only paid 24 cents an hour more than anything else I could get. Uh, two, it was great for weight management. You can't eat much when you work in the, rat, in the lab with rats. <laughs> and then I learned the value of saying yes when nobody else would and of our sport. Now, the only thing I want to add to this time, time given is a great quote from one of the greatest philosophers of our time. Quote, there is no shortcut to success. And the philosopher will be Tom, Tom Brady, <laughs> our, our wonderful mm-hmm. quarterback. Those are my pillars of success. Well, it makes sense, and it, 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 frankly, it describes why you have been so successful. And I know you've sold some really interesting, interesting stuff, and I, I'd like to know about that before we start talking about your book. Uh, I love you for asking that question, because every time I, I, do, I say those things, I get, hit, I get a kick out of it. Oh, uh, good. It's, it's important know, that you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's, 
I relive some of those things every time I talk about them. There's a great lyric out there by this great R.B. Ray Goodman and Brown, uh, and then later on by the Bee Gees, you know, it's, how can love so right be so wrong? It seems to me I kind of turned that upside down a tad. How can love so wrong turn out so, to be so right? Stuff by soul. Or brain food. Do with that as you like. Uh, how about swimming pools in Northern Oregon and Washington? Uh, that's kind of an, on the insane side. Uh, Toyotas. Oh, I saw a lot of Toyotas when the Priuses were blowing up in the freeways in LA. Those people never call me when things are good. They call me they have a problem. Hey, I sold phony Marlboros made in Yagdung in Egypt, in Russia. And one day I'll tell you about how you do that uh, mm. and how you do that buck naked, hoping to survive it. I sold more flowers and chocolates online than anybody on earth. Like I discovered this tiny little company years ago called Flow Flowers, Sherry's Berries, and then we sold millions and millions and millions of bouquets of flowers. Uh, mm. One of my fun products was, uh, <laughs> it trust me, we sold many, many, many cargo ships filled with horse manure from Chile <laughs> to Germany. Uh, how does that happen? Well, she got a plane going down to Santiago, Chile, with a young guy, Jack, whom I know for years, and I'm reading something that says Germans outlawed everything but organic fertilizer. has to be manure, and there just isn't enough of it. So uh, Jack's father-in-law, one of those people who escaped, uh, came back from, from the war, ended up in Chile, he was actually illiterate when someone said to me, gee, would you like to sell this thing called a Ford, an automobile? He said, sure. Became a massive, massively wealthy man. And he owned the largest horse ranch in South America, turns out. And Jack of the Plain is telling me what a terrible problem that is as it relates to all that manure. They put in the barges and they towed out to the ocean and dumped in the ocean and said, wait a second, hold on a second. You dump this stuff in the ocean that Germany wants to buy? Two months later, we had containers and containers and containers of horse manure being shipped from Chile to Germany. And that is how my friend Jack became the horseshit king of South America. <laughs> so, you know. How about tons of canned beef? Tons of canned beef for the Siberian winter market. Try 40 million euros of that the first time out because people are hungry. Hey, I made no money in that, but was that fun? Uh, I, uh, I sold holy crosses in the whole land with ho- filled with holy water. Uh, I explained that to seven attorneys general how that was possible. Uh, and then I sold some stuff that actually did not exist. My most favorite product of all time is something called a Megaforce Digigraph. Megaforce was just a terrible movie I saw once or twice or three times. Chuck Norris. I don't know why I saw it three times because it ends the same way. Digigraph is a <laughs> word I made up. You know, I, Digigraph, I, 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 for all the wrong reasons in the world, particularly, my mommy called one day and gave me one of these, oh, honey, can you help out? It had to do with the family she knew before the war, and they were here, and they were penniless, and they were illegal, all this, they're Hungarians. All that, because I had to figure out how to make them stay. Uh, you remember that? great movie, The Producers, mm-hmm. Mel Brooks. Well, I yeah. created one of my own. Well, you know what? As if, how can something so wrong go so right? 
I spent $1,500 to justify this man's existence. And then six months later, we had a massive business in seven countries. Because why? Because my mommy said, oh, honey, can you help? I couldn't say no to her. Became a massive, a massive business. Look, uh, trillions of data points, undersea table, uh, in carrying data and so on, all the way across the Atlantic and so on. Having a war with the Norwegian fishermen, we kept cutting the darn lines. Explain to the feds why we could do it for half the money they were doing it. Hey, you know what? It's uh, kind of a million dollars an hour sort of business. It's phenomenal. Anyway, these are some things that I've sold that I enjoyed selling, and there are many, many more and many, many stories. And I don't get much into uh, all the stuff I sold that I think was legal, uh, the lawyer said it was legal. Uh, look, my conscience is clear. What can I tell you? So, there you go. Thank you there for you asking. There you go. That's important. You're welcome. Let's, let's spend some time talking about this book you've written, which has, speaking of controversial, has quite – Quite an interesting title, and the title of this book is called Pimps, Whores, and Patrons of Future. Did you hear me not say that correctly? Pimps, Whores, and Patrons of Virtue. That's pretty, that, that, that'll catch somebody's eyesight. It's like, hmm. So what, how did you come up with the title of a book like that and tell us about what this book is all about? Okay. Uh, allow me to tackle that backwards. Uh, sure. A couple of words about the book, Pain, Souls, and Patience of Virtue, and then I'll tell you how it came from. Uh, All right. And why it's controversial, perhaps stop, I'm not sure. In some circles, it's very controversial. But then, listen, I quote the Bible all the time because it's great stories. I also quote the Talmud. I also quote the Quran uh, because they all have phenomenal life stories. And I... I was challenged by this radio host in Atlanta. How could you write that? I said, okay, there, let me give you 19 Bible quotes that use the words pimps and whores. Uh, that didn't satisfy, didn't satisfy him. I may or may not be asked to be, be there again. Now, about the book. Uh, my Cliff's notes on the book. Uh, I fancy myself, and you'll forgive me, an astute observer of people and life. I spend the mm-hmm. time and the energy to do that, to observe, try to comprehend, dissect, get engaged. Uh, and, and you wrote this about me, which I appreciate. I'm going to quote you here. Some people collect stamps, memorabilia, music dolls, Zippo lighters, bottle caps, Happy Meal toys, rocks, and bad habits. I collect people and stories, mm-hmm. which is the basics of, the, of this book. So I let, thankfully, an experience for his life. Millions and millions of real miles, life miles, of travel, real miles, like, you know, the pressurized sardine cans, the flying things. <laughs> I express, you know, I express my observations as a storyteller, a satirist, and sometimes a provocateur, the latter being a whole lot of fun. See, mm-hmm. I also think, and I'm borrowing some of this from people much, much smarter than I am, uh, see, I, I also think, and this reflects on everything I've written in my book, because there's nothing PC about the book. On the contrary, I think I'm betraying my life if I don't say and write what I think and do that honestly and bluntly. Now, 
the fundamental drivers of the book are my philosophies in life that you asked about. Mm-hmm. The book itself is a kaleidoscope, and it's a great word, I think. Uh, I tried to live up to writing a kaleidoscopic piece that's layered, textured, it's rich in that way. It's 31 stories, entertaining, intellectually challenging, satires, essays, anecdotes, observations, ideologies, even a couple pieces of really challenging correspondence. One of those will bring tears to my eyes when I read it for the 119th time. I took a deep dive into the fascinating and incomprehensible human condition and spirit. And I think that it, it, that is really spellbinding. And I think it's, it's relevant as it has been out often enough. See, I wrote this book, much of it in the first person. See, I'm much like having a chat with my reader. You know, I hope that my absolute philosophy of life transcend my prose as I hope the chat you and I are having will do the same. I mm-hmm. think the book is uh, uh, equal parts entertaining, informative, intellectually challenging. And yes, I get emails about people laughing for an hour and then crying for one, an hour. That makes my book successful. Now, the name. I put people in three buckets. Uh, pimps, whores, and patrons of virtue. And I'll get to that in a moment time. I hope that the book educates people to some extent, humbly, informs and hopefully motivates them and influences them. And I think that's, that's all. If my readers are entertained, challenged, upset, filled with some joy, informed, that my book is a success. And I do write for people who have a heart and a soul, intelligence, and, of course, a sense of humor. Now, you're going to ask me where the title came from. You asked me where the title came from. Right. Uh, uh, pins and whores, I mean, that sounds pejorative, you know. Uh, it is not intended to be salacious or provocative. It really is getting down, I think, to the very basics. What people tend to be, regrettably more often than not, pins and whores. Now, uh, then it's patrons of virtue. Now, what the, heck is, what the heck is really a virtuous person? I know, I kind of know what it is, but I also know how difficult that is. What is it? I mean, you have to live by yielding morality. You can't be situationally ethical. Now, how's that work out? You never bend the circumstances and needs or pressure from every aspect of your life in the world. Well, if you don't bend morally, ethically, at least some, you may just break. And my father was one of the very, very few truly virtuous people I've ever met. I wrote much about that, of course. Now, so I try to do that, and I fail miserably, spectacularly. So I think about that in context of people I know, virtuous people. People, you know, there are a lot of people that do want to be, live a virtuous life to the extent to which they find it possible. So I said, you know, for the very, very rare virtuous people out there, there might be nine people who try hard enough. I call those virtues of virtue. Now, so hence, horse, pigs, horse, pigs, and virtue. Now, where did pigs and horse come from? Uh, if you've got three more minutes, I will tell you where I got the words from, pigs and horse. Sure. Many years ago, back in the day when I had a lot of hair, and it was dark, <laughs> I knew this woman. Her name was Tara Kate Ginsburg. Now, why Tara Kate? The woman had the reddest hair I've ever seen in my life. 
I mean, she was, her hair was so raw, right? She would walk across the street and knit on Manhattan against her light. People would stop thinking it was a flashing red light. <laughs> One, okay. Now, her name was really Claire, and she was a major media broker around. And real, a really relevant business relation for me when I was very young. One day I worked up there, you know what, the courage, to ask her how she could do business with a particularly horrible client. The worst, most awful, corrupt people in the industry, without hesitation, she yelled at me. And I can't mimic the screeching New York accent. <laughs> I said, honey, Booby, we're all pimps and horse. Booby, we're all pimps and horse. It's the money, honey. I said, wait a second, hold on now. Some of us are not that, for other kind of virtues. She said, show me one of those. And she hung up on me. Didn't talk to me for two weeks. Hence the title, you know, Bims and Whores, and how I characterize people. Bims, Whores, and Patients of Virtue. Very interesting. So I, I'm, I'm listening to you, and I'm taking in the things that you're saying, and I'm, I'm putting myself in your shoes for a moment. And I'm thinking about um, how you balance all the things that you do. And I'm wondering, you've done so much in your life, and congratulations on your success. But I'm wondering, Thank you. how do you, you're welcome, but how do you, how do you set up your writing process? I, I have a lot of authors, and I want to thank um, Devin Blaine, she sends a lot of her clients to me, you being one of them, and said, oh, my God, Marcia, wait till you talk to this guy. How do, you, how do you do your writing? Are you a person that sits in front of the computer and just starts panging it out? Do you write, do you write it out? Do you do outlines? How do you go, how do you go about writing? Hmm. Well, first of all, let's go backwards. You know, the, 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 there's two things in writing that I just totally just discovered. You, and a lot of people uh, think it's the Gatsby thing, you know. You sit around for a year or two, and you're tortured, and you're hoping for the muse to kiss you on the forehead, and then you sit down and write for a year. If that was me, I'd commit suicide. <laughs> uh, then people say, well, you know, it's uh, uh, writing and writing and rewriting and rewriting. And if I can turn out a good page a day, uh, I'm doing well. If that was me, I would sit on the beach in Pavuvu, grow a beard out to my navel, and drink umbrella drinks. To me, writing, first of all, it, it, I, I hope that you get onto it. There's a, there's a great interview in something called Billion Success about writing. It's kind of a condensed version of a lot of questions about how do I do this and how I think you should write. First of all, in my world, writing to me is, first, there's an understanding if you're going to be a successful writer, not a technical writer. And this is a manningism. Writing is a very different kind of being naked. Uh, to explain, most people sit down to write anything, and they say, hmm, let me, let me write this with, with something in mind. Who's going to read this? Well, unless you're writing a letter. The minute you're thinking about who your audience might be, forget it. Get a job in a haberdashery. Sell shoes. doesn't work. To me, and I look at this, it's, it's, it's kind of crash, but when some people have a terrible day, they do terrible things. They indulge in all the wrong stuff. 
they eat too much, they drink too much. Some people stick needles in their arm. All kinds of destructive behavior. They go out shopping. When I'm a little bit troubled, I sit down and write, write something about it. Because pounding the keyboard is as emotionally as, as satisfactory to me as intellectually so. What mm-hmm. triggers a story? I have 10 stories a day. What triggers them? And I, I wake up at, I typically wake up at 3.18 in the morning. That's a pathology <laughs> one day I will investigate, but that's true. Most of the time, I'm not one of those people that wakes up and yawns and stretches. I'm up, I'm up. I put on a T-shirt, a pair of shorts, and off to my office in, 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 in my home, and I sit down and turn on the computer. What triggers a story? Something I heard, something I saw, something that just randomly pops in my head. I will write about it, abandon it, but I will. And I don't write and rewrite, by the way. I compose mm-hmm. in my head. And by the time I sit down to write that page or two or 10 or 20 or 30, I pretty much know what I'm going to write. I even know the sequence because it's in my mind. Occupies something in my mind. A lot of the pieces I have written, they know them some of the most successful. are just combinations of words that pop in my head. Yes. Uh, I wrote these. I'll give you an example. I woke up with Rubik's Cube in my mind. <laughs> the reason for that is why? Because I was on the phone with one of my best friends who happens to live in Budapest. And last time I was in Budapest, driving from work, I have an office there as well, driving from there to her house, we drove by this beautiful home. So, by the way, that's where Rubik, Rubik lives. I didn't know. Okay, Rubik's Cube was in my mind. And I was puzzled by something that bumped me. And I woke up with these words a veritable intellectual Rubik's Cube. What the heck does that mean? Man, it sure sounds good. Well, I sat down with that. In, I, that woke me up at 3 o'clock in the morning, quite literally. And what, and I, and Steve, what did I do with it? you know something? I want to interrupt you because I heard something that you might not have realized what you said because we are talking about the value of words. And you said, I was puzzled by that, which is a Rubik's Cube. Go ahead. <laughs> I heard it. Okay. Now, now I will now borrow that from you uh, okay. for very good reasons. I will, and I will, I will now find somewhere, somehow, somewhere today to use that because you, did, you said something. I will. I will. Now, uh, that story, uh, that those words, I sat down, and the next thing that came to my mind was something called the banality of evil. Now, I wrote a piece about banality evil, which is the Holocaust. What that happened? How did that happen? How can that happen again? Why is that happening again today? Those words trigger a story. Now, if, it's, if you're going to be a writer, the, and this is getting to kind of winding up what you asked me, the only limits to your ability to write are those that you create for yourself. Now, you don't have to write like George Will or Krauthammer or Rousseau or uh, Churchill or somebody, or Mark Stein's or Oscar Wilde, you know, my favorites, Bernard Shaw, Martin Luther King. You don't have to do that. The idea is to get that idea across with enough depth in the words and a feeling that you are communicating what you feel about that. 
I mean, the, the, every writer wants to write these words. It was the best times, it was the worst of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody wants to write that. That's supposed to be the greatest line ever written. And you know what? It is phenomenal in its simplicity. What it all means, you know, give me that line. Give that line to a decent high school lip writer and say, write an essay. All you know is this one line. So that's the time to watch the times. And anybody can write beyond, hey, mom, how you doing? I'm enjoying that. Can write a meaningful page or two. My daughter certainly could. But then they grew up in a house where everybody was reading, everybody was working, everybody was working like dogs. Uh, my kids had multiple frequent flyer numbers by the time they hit two because I dragged them around the world. I had to go and kids went. My kids missed more school than anybody under the, under the, uh, uh, the 11th grade in the history of the world. My kids missed two months a year of school. Why? Mom and dad worked very hard. We ran two very large businesses and premium Premium time with mom and dad. It was that premium. Hey, I'm, I got two days, I'm taking two days off, going skiing, going somewhere. Thirteen bags. The kids were gone. Wow. My kids grew up verbal that way. And they, God bless them, I have two, I, I have two daughters. They're grown, going very mm-hmm. successful. And I could not tell you how proud I am of their ability to write and express themselves. They're wonderfully verbal. It also helps. See, I will share this with you, Marcia, just because you and I are talking. Nobody else listen. Prayer really works. <laughs> what Why? really works? I'm sorry. Say that I, once again. Prayer works, and this is how I know. Okay. My daughters are nine years apart. Now, that happens that way when you have different mommies. But each mommy, each time, I pray for nine months that the girls turn out like their mothers, and my prayers were answered. Hence, I have mm-hmm. fantastic daughters. So writing, again, it's kind of like it's not falling off a bicycle. It's just staying on a damn bicycle. Sit down and write it. I have answered the question a thousand times. Does, I wrote this. Does it sound right? Are you trying to write like some partner in Staten Arps? Are you trying to write like, what are you trying to write like? What do you mean? Just write it. How much can you write? Not enough. Uh, one of the, you know, I've been writing my whole life about this or that, the other. I mean, I've had a very extensive business life. I have written more advertising than a lot of people. I've written more pieces, essays, and so on. I have written business letters, and you'll forgive me for this. this I'm being humble here. Uh, I've written business letters that have been circulated around the world. Yeah. I had a call from a guy who was a publisher of New Zealand's version, version of The New Yorker. I mean, this is six months ago. Guy says, I have this letter here that I wrote in 1991. It's a business letter. The CEO of Haynes Hosiery. You mind if I publish it? I said, say what? Hmm. Okay. I, I mean, well, it made it's for around the world. In my book, there's a letter, the letter to the Honorable Dr. Evil Starbright. It's a letter I wrote to the German ambassador to the United States years ago with a copy to Bill Clinton. I put it in my book because that particular letter has been around the world a hundred different times. Why? Because I wrote what I thought, what I felt. And you know what? You don't have to have my thesaurus. My thesaurus is ridiculous. Why? <laughs> I learned this language in my late teens. I just learned a ton of words. And then over the years, I learned how to put them together. And now that I learned them the hard way, I'll be damned. I will just use them all. 
You don't have to have my thesaurus right. You have to have a clarity, not even clarity of thinking. That's the clarity of what you are thinking. Just put it down on a piece of paper. I cannot teach you to draw a horse. I'm but curious I can teach you about to write something. A about, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm curious about what you just said. How many languages do you speak? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I have to qualify <laughs> that. Uh, once upon a time, and perhaps again, I was fluent in Hungarian and Romanian. Those are native tongues concurrently where I grew up in Romania, Transylvania. Uh, the next language I learned was German because my parents insisted. And then it was French, Russian, of course. Uh, over the years, I became fluent in Italian, having lived in Italy as a teenager. I speak Spanish as well. Uh, and, I get, and I get along in French. But if you don't practice those, they recess in your mind. Yes. Uh, the hard drive, as you get older particularly, I don't mean older as in 112. I mean, once you get into the 50s and 60s, the hard drive starts to prioritize. Your hard drive says, I don't need to remember how to say that in German, French, blah, blah, blah. I don't. Now, Italian, I'm partial to because I love this language. I once began learning to speak Italian. Why? Because I met a man here in L.A., uh, sitting in a coffee shop. Uh, he manufactures jeans in Italy. He's also a writer. Wrote this book, and, uh, you know, I said, I'd love to read your book. That's Italian. He said, fine, send it to me. He's reading my book and writing pages and pages commentary on my book. God bless him. So I am now relearning Italian. Why? Because I'm trying to read a, 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 a fiction book in Italian. Mm-hmm. And how do I do that? I break it up in lots of little paragraphs. I read it. I struggle with it. And then thank God for Google Translate. And once I see them side by side, I recover one or two words every paragraph. I think if I come and done with these 400 pages of dribble, because it is dribble, my Italian will be a whole lot better. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, think, I think teaching your kids languages is much the same way as doing curls for your biceps. It just makes okay. your brain bigger, more supple, more receptive. Uh, I communicate on an ordinary basis in English, uh, Italian, uh, and uh, uh, Hungarian. One of my best friends, I said, lives in Budapest. She and I communicate in Hungarian. Uh, on the other hand, I communicate in French with her husband, which is an absolutely ridiculous challenge. She'll never do that. And uh-huh. then Italian, because I have a good friend in, in, in New York, and we challenge each other to speak Italian. And now I'm reading an Italian book, which is making my – my brain is really quality scrambled age now. So sometimes well, I don't really know what the heck I'm talking about. But right. Well, you know, that's that, – honestly, that's where my mind was going. I mean, I, I – English, you know. I so I'm thinking okay so this man gets up at 3:18 in the morning and he starts writing and he's processing his writing in English I think but maybe there are other voices that are speaking to him in Hungarian and now he's trying to say shh, shh I got to just could one of you just take the lead here I'm trying to time to put myself in your chair and visualize as you're going through a writing process what that must be like for you. The only way to master a language is to begin to think in it. I mean, it took me probably five years, six years from the time I was a teenager until I started to think in English rather than translate. 
The last thing you learn to do is numbers before you start translating those. The truth is that my, my, my use of the language, thankfully, is very good. I'm proud of it because I know how hard it was to learn it. I know what took to, I bought this language the hard way, and I'll be damned if I won't use it well. But still, and it's interesting, Hungarian, for example, one of the most useless languages in history, uh, but then every once in a while, out of nowhere, a word will pop in my head. I'll say to my wife, there's a great Hungarian word for this, very nonsensical. And I'm trying to find an English equivalent. And she looks at me and the look on her face is, honey, get a life. You know what? Uh, I, I think in English, I speak English, uh, I dream in English, except those times where I have a whole adventure in some language I don't speak. Heck, I was in a car driving from Vienna across Slovakia two years ago, and I listened for six hours to a radio station a language that I'm pretty sure it was Slovak, which I don't speak. Sounds kind of Russian, which I no longer speak. And I stuck with it for hours because I kind of happened to be music and speak. I kind of understood it. And I, I walked out of the car. I was so, I was so dizzy. I didn't know where I, where I was. <laughs> you were just so and then when I worked, I had a business in New York for many years. So I worked in a number of languages. And at the end of the week, I'd come home and I'd sit in the plane and say to the nice person next to me, Hey, I'm usually chatty, but hey, I'm a little tired. I'm just sick of pretending I was saying nothing. Just to reset the brain. So by the time I get home, I'm not scrambling for words. That's interesting. Well, in these last few moments, because I'm, I'm, I, I feel like when I have my guests on my show telling their stories, and I'm so focused on the things that you're saying, but at the same time. I know that you have a very productive life. So, what do you do when you're not writing? When you're not working? What do you? How do you balance that part of your life? Do you exercise? Do you take your? Do you have a dog you take for a walk? What do you do? Uh, my main source of entertainment is in fact writing. You know, I, I say this. I can, hey, you know, sometimes I have a wife. I connect. I can work in sub-Saharan Africa. I have, you know, and I, I can work in the backseat of your car if you have a backseat. Uh, writing to me is, is, uh, is really cathartic. It keeps my brain working. I'm working mm-hmm. on three new books. I write major uh, interviews and all that and major media all the time because it's fun. And I can write on demand, which is the most fun. Hey, can you write uh, for uh, a foreign magazine 7,000 words on being salesy? Oh, okay. I'll do that because it's challenging. It's wonderful. I led a very physically active life. I competed at the highest level of tennis and skiing. Oh. I raced offshore boats. I raced formula cars and all of that. Uh, two and a half years ago, I had, my, I had a knee replacement, which mm-hmm. has been a, a root canal without anesthetic. I have one of those people <laughs> that had a knee replacement oh. that I almost died from it. The reason oh, is boy. I was overdosed in the hospital. I don't oh, do dear. drugs, never have, mm-hmm. and they overdose me with opioids, and then I went to rehab for two years without any drugs. Try that. No, it's in you. So I have a challenging wife, intellectually so, emotionally, without a doubt. I'm madly in love with this woman and have been for a long, long, long time. Uh, again, she's been the most amazing influence in my life, taught me how to live a balanced life. Uh, I live turbo boost 24-7. When I was doing something, I was planning the next thing. 
She taught me yes. to enjoy the thing I was doing uh, now. Uh, Be in the present. I, uh, she taught me how – she – I'll never forget the day, and I'll stop this. It's when I was laying on the couch with a music blast. It, 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 talk about passions. We have 100 cuts of music. I will not listen to 129,000 of those, but we have – I was laying on the couch listening to music. The TV's on. I was reading a book. My wife said to me, are you going to get dressed soon? Why? Because, well, you know, we have theater tickets going to the music center to, 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 to blah, blah. And I said, oh, my God, I forgot all about it. She spent a year hunting for tickets, bought them nine months ahead of time for a ton of money, and I forgot all about it. And she looked at me, are you going to get dressed? And I said, oh, my, I forgot all about it. And she looked at me and said, you know, honey, if you'd rather do what you're doing now, that's okay. We don't have to go. I think she spent $400 a ticket, and it took me mm-hmm. months and months and months to do it. She said, honey, uh, there's a balance in life. If you're doing what you're doing now, those three things, are what you much prefer to do, let's not do it. It's worth the investment. That's what she taught me about life, among other things. You know, I, the, the women in your life have had quite a significance, and, and I, I, I got that from what you said. That came across very clear. And um, as a woman that's raised two children with my husband, I think about those things and the influences that my mother had on my life and my mother-in-law as well, I must say, bless her heart. Um, so, you know, you, you're, as you said, life is not a dress rehearsal, and you knew that at 15 years old, and you're beyond 15 at this point in your life. And I just I want to thank you. Steve, for sharing your stories with um, our listeners. Clearly, we could we could go on for hours because because you are passionate. You know, if you were phony, if you were just trying to sell me something, it would so come across that way, and I would be so uninterested, frankly, to be perfectly honest with you. But you are so genuine. I, I appreciate I appreciate the kind words. I promise. I. Well, me but I mean minute, it. I, I don't hope. say it if I don't mean it. We ha- we share a lot of commonalities. Like you, I love talking to people I don't know and realizing, oh, in the process, you, you, we we found something common about what whatever it was that started our conversation over by the carrots in the market. Isn't that amazing and wonderful? It is. It really is. I, I would rather spend my time, much like you, doing the things that I love, what I'm grateful for, and I am. I do live a grateful life. I'm grateful for doing doing this every week. I have friends that would never want to put this kind of effort into what I do each week, but you know what? That's okay. You do you. I'll do me. And I I just want to thank you so very much for spending this time with me sharing your story because it's been valuable and I hope that people have enjoyed it as much as I have. I promise you it was my pleasure entirely. Well, thank you. And everybody, I'm going to let Steve get on with his day. I'm going to let you all get on with your day. And I'll say goodbye for now because guess what? I'll be back again just like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. I'll be back next week. (laughs) So thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Bye for now.